The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book Three, The Wanderer's Curse. Chapter One, in which the Molly returns to the village. Astrea's farewell still in his ears, Red Ian looked over the Molly's stern at the four young people on the wharf, a troubled frown replacing his usually placid expression. "'Skipper,' he began. "'Hodden in that jib,' Roaring Jack boomed in his ear. "'We want out of here in as few tacks as we can.' The big sailor obeyed, because he was in the habit of responding immediately to his skipper's orders. But as his hands went about the familiar task, he decided that Roaring Jack was wrong. This conclusion went against everything he had been brought up to believe about life at sea. What concerned Red Ian was not that Roaring Jack was wrong in the sense of a minor mistake, or a lapse of attention, or even an error of judgment. The skipper was wrong because he had turned against people under his command and protection. Though Red Ian was more easy-going than most men, and the last to insist on his opinions, this was different, because it was a matter of facts and principles, and the more so because he did not even think in these words, he just knew. He had come to his decision, but he had missed the chance to do anything about Estrella, who is now ashore, and from Redian's point of view, in a different world, where he would have to fend for himself. Red Ian's world was the Molly, where he had to decide what to do about Roaring Jack. In the cabin below, Skarm was setting out food and water for the teen-mouth woman and her sons. Even though Roaring Jack was younger than he, and indeed depended upon him for approval and even advice, Skarm, like every villager who followed the sea, was inured to following orders. However, like Red Ian, Skarm was aghast that the skipper had abandoned Estrella and his friends, people who had crewed his boat, taken his orders, and even fought with and for him. Skarm took a deep breath and tried to lay aside his emotions and understand what had happened. The skipper had gone from treating Estrella as a full crew member and valued asset, to sailing away without finding out what had happened to him, to fabricating his own version of reality, in which Jan was the victim and Estrella the aggressor. And now, when Estrella had reappeared and Jan's treachery was unmasked, instead of apologizing, Roaring Jack had denied the obvious and abandoned Estrella once again. Skarm could think of no reason why Roaring Jack could have sided with Jan, when independent witnesses had confirmed the young man's guilt. Like Red Ian, Skarm was acutely conscious that he had missed the opportunity to intervene. He blamed himself for not having spoken strongly the first time Roaring Jack turned against Estrella, and he hated himself for not challenging the eviction of four likable young people. Skarm beckoned the children to the bread and cheese he had put out on the table, his thoughts confused and distant from what he was doing. "'Thanks,' said Mary. Skarm realized that he'd heard only her last word. He muttered something about hoping they would get her home soon, assured the two boys that they would land for the night, and escaped to the cockpit, unhappily speculating about what he might have done and said while the molly was still at Charton. As he climbed into the cockpit, Skarm glanced at Red Ian, who was shading his eyes with one huge hand. 
The big man's eyebrows were furrowed, but not from the bright light. He lowered his hand and gave Scarm a long, speculative look, ending with a quick glance at Roaring Jack. Scarm followed his eyes, and saw for the first time that the skipper's face had become haggard. It was as if the man he knew had aged a decade over the days of their trip south. "'Maybe I should take a trick at the tiller, Jack?' he asked softly. "'You look as if you could do with some rest.' "'So you can sail me boat stead of me? Not likely!' The answer was so swift and edgy, Scarm could think of no answer to the irrational anger in Roaring Jack's voice. Fearing that the skipper was only a little away from believing that his crew were uniting against him, Scarm said nothing, especially as he could feel Red Ian's eyes on him. He deliberately focused his attention on the horizon as they sailed on in an uncomfortable silence. When they were outside the harbour mouth, they settled into a broad reach eastward along the coastline. The molly rose and fell on long, gentle swells, a land breeze on her port quarter. The shoreline was a green smudge in the distance. Closer and abeam, waves flashed white as they broke on the rocks below the cliffs. Astern, the headlands of Charton Harbour disappeared into the afternoon haze. As the day waned, they cruised closer and closer to the shore, and when evening cast blue shadows into the water, the molly slid around a distinctive headland that Roaring Jack had remembered from sailing towards Charton. Scarm manned the lead line to find their way into a quiet cove behind a sheltering island. A golden sunset had faded to deep blue, and the eastern sky had darkened enough to show the first stars when the molly's bow crunched softly into a sandy beach. Red Ian lit a fire above the tide-line, and they shared a silent supper of the same stale bread and cheese that they'd been eating for days. Neither Scarm nor Red Ian spoke for fear of irritating Roaring Jack any further. The children, who'd heard the tone of Roaring Jack's voice, had no need of Mary's whispered warning to be quiet. The two boys watched the adults with fearful eyes until they could no longer stay awake. Red Ian carried them back to the molly, where he helped Mary make them as comfortable as possible in the cabin. "'The tide's on the turn. We'll leave our beach till morning. I'll be watching her from the shore. Don't worry. You won't be floating off on us. Sleep safe and well.' It was a long speech for Redian, but he delivered it with conviction. Mary nodded to him with something approaching calm. "'Will we be home to-morrow?' she asked. "'Wind and water willin,' Red Ian replied. He bundled up an armload of canvas and blankets and went ashore. Behind him the lantern in the cabin winked out. After he had dumped his load where Scarm and Roaring Jack could help themselves, he made his way to the rope from the molly's bow to a sizable pine tree above the tide-line. He checked the bowline around the tree and returned to the fire. The wind had dropped. What waves reached into the cove pulsed gently and his feet were almost noiseless. Ahead of him in the darkness he heard Scarm's voice. He paused and studied the black shape that was the old man's body, hunched in front of what was left of the fire. "'Jack, I've always been square with you,' said Scarm softly. "'And I've never asked you to think again about what you've decided. "'Sep about Lana being crazy, and sep for your everlasting distrust that's undermined me command.' You and that little stowaway runt Cam, stirring up trouble. And now 
you're doing the same to Red, poisoning the memory of that sweet boy, me kinsman, Yan. Jack, you're wrong. Alana wasn't crazy. Yan was treacherous. And if you're talking about poisoning someone's memory, that's what he did to Estrella. Don't talk to me about that black-haired weasel. They're all the same. His da was a good man, Jack. You said so yourself. And half of Estrella comes from your kinswoman, Alana. Tricked her? That's what they did? She was never the same after they hand-fasted. I was glad when he was lost. I can't believe you said that, Jack. I could say a lot more if there weren't any point in it. But you won't listen. You're all again me. You all are. And it's that black-hearted stranger that's done it. Red Ian saw Scarm's shoulders rise and fall as the old man shrugged, pulled his blankets around him, and stretched out on the sand. Roaring Jack rolled himself up in the storm jib and turned his back, a hank of red hair barely visible in the light of the fire. Red Ian stood and waited until he heard two separate snores before he found his share of the canvas and blankets and lay down for the night. He stared into the embers of the fire and pondered on the situation for a long and inconclusive time. Finally he sighed, rolled himself up in his improvised bedding, and fell asleep, still deeply unsatisfied. The next day the wind freshened as the sun rose out of the thin haze. Red Ian woke first. He grunted, stretched, rolled out of his cocoon of canvas, stood up, scratched sand out of his red hair, and looked around. He saw that the molly was already afloat, held off the beach by the stern killick, her bowline slack. He bent down and shook the smaller of the two canvas-wrapped shapes. Scarm, better wake up. Looks like we got a fair wind. An earthquake from the skipper's bedding sprayed sand into Scarm's face and filled Redian's hair a second time. So, Red, it's not enough you're talking behind me back. You got to give orders, too. Redian looked blankly at Roaring Jack, who was now on his feet, kicking the bedding into a pile. Get all this stuff aboard. Red, shove her bow off. Scarm, get aboard. And wake the women and their kids. Tell them to stay out of the way. Red Ian nodded, offered a hand to help Scarm to his feet, glanced at the skipper, and rolled his eyes at the old sailor. Scarm raised his shoulders in something between a shrug and a stretch. He stamped his feet in the sand and flexed his muscles, stiffened by the night. Go along, Ian. I'll handle my bedding. You'll both do as I say! Roaring Jack's voice echoed around the cove like a thunderclap. They blinked at the onslaught of sound, exchanged glances, and went about the task of turning the molly around so they could sail away from the beach. From on board came the sound of a whimper, quickly silenced. Roaring Jack vaulted aboard and started to hoist the sails. Scarm clambered after him, his one good arm clumsy from having been slept on. Redian tossed an armload of blankets and canvas onto the foredeck, and walked back along the bow line to where he had belayed it the night before. Scarm tried to pick up the awkward load, but was unable to get his good arm around it. He went down onto his knees to shove the bundle past the mast, where the skipper was hoisting the jib, thinking to push it across the cabin top and into the cockpit. When the canvas brushed the skipper's legs, Roaring Jack turned on him. Get that out of my way, you clumsy cripple! Scarm squinted up at Roaring Jack's face against the brightening sky. Roaring Jack leaned over him, his face flushed, 
and the veins on his forehead standing out. His upper lip was drawn back from his teeth, and his hair stood up in red tufts all around his face. Scarn searched the skipper's eyes for the man he thought he knew. Roaring Jack turned back to the halyards, cutting off anything the older man might have said. As he returned to pushing the bedding astern, Mary came up to the cockpit from the cabin. Somewhat shamefaced, Scarm accepted her help to get the load into the cabin. When he came back up to the cockpit, Roaring Jack was at the helm, the main sheet in one hand. His face was no longer as highly coloured, but a muscle in his cheek twitched. Scarm, hold the kellock. Red, when she's clear of the shore, shove her bow to port. Roaring Jack's order required Scarm to haul the stern line at the same time as Redian waded into the water to push the Molly's bow around. Redian and Scarm both hesitated because the orders did not make sense. First of all, it would be difficult for Scarm to pull up the anchor with only one good arm. But even more baffling, if Scarm pulled the Molly astern into the cove, Redian would have to wade into deep water, whereas if Red Ian climbed onto the bow first, as Scarm hauled on the stern line, the Molly would back off the beach far enough for the sails to draw. All it required was for Roaring Jack to push the tiller so that the rudder would turn the boat into the right attitude to catch the wind. The correct manoeuvre was so obvious to Scarm and Redian that they could not imagine why Roaring Jack was making it more difficult. "'Get in the water now, you big lug!' Roaring Jack's voice had the pitch of someone about to lose control. Red Ian slung the coiled bowline over one shoulder and waded in, pushing at the bow. In a few strides the water was past his waist, and he prepared to climb aboard. "'Further!' shouted Roaring Jack. Red Ian took two more steps, stoked to his neck. He hauled himself aboard and stood dripping on the foredeck, his clothes clinging to his big body. "'If it's all the same to you, Skipper, I'll shift into dry clothes.' Roaring Jack glared at him, his face twisted. Red Ian stared back. Then he deliberately climbed down into the cockpit and faced the skipper within an arm's length. Roaring Jack's mouth opened to shout, but something in Red Ian's eyes kept him silent. The wordless exchange and the pause that followed while Red Ian went below for dry clothes steadied Roaring Jack's temper. The Molly made her way out into the open sea in two short tacks, where she settled into an easy reach, both sails drawing well, and her lee rail wetted by the occasional wave-top. Hesitantly at first, the two boys peeked up the companionway, and when Scarm grinned at them, ventured up to sit where they could see the shoreline of cliffs, topped by the dark green of spruce and cedar. After a while, Mary brought food and drink up from below. Roaring Jack accepted his share with a grunt, and ate and drank at the tiller. When Scarm and Reddy and thanked her, the skipper scowled at them, but said nothing. As the day wore on, they followed the coast, gradually turning northward, through due north and around to the west. The rugged shoreline softened to long sandy beaches, backed by forests of oak and maple. The wind accommodated their changing course by backing to the east, and then steadily increasing under a sky that started silvery white in the morning, and gradually dulled to grey by afternoon. The molly ran downwind with her sails goose-winged, and her bluff bow foaming up and down the waves. Eventually Reddy and raised one arm to point to the distinctive line of breakers along the reef that guarded Teenmouth. Since they were retracing their course, they had no difficulty finding the gap. 
Skarm shooed the boys below so that they could jibe onto a port tack and plough through the weed-flecked waters into the calm of the lagoon. As soon as the molly was on an even keel in the quiet water beyond the reef, the two children came up into the cockpit and peeked over the edge. Ma, we're near home. I can see the top of the meeting house. There, lad, stay calm, said Roaring Jack, almost softly. We'll have you ashore in no time. Skarm, get ready to drop the pick and smother the jib. Red, let's have the dory over the side so as I can take the three of them ashore. Reddy and Skarm nodded and went about their tasks the speedier for the fact that they had been asked in Roaring Jack's normal voice. They exchanged glances as they made their way forward, sharing their wonder at the skipper's transformations into and out of barely controlled rage. As the Molly made her way up the River Teen to where she had anchored months before, Reddy and thought he saw a man running through the trees toward the houses. "'They've been standing watch,' he said. Roaring Jack nodded, and held his course until the Molly lay still, poised between the wind and the river's current. "'Let go!' "'Douse the sails!' The boat drifted seaward until the anchor grabbed, and then swung gently back and forth in the middle of the stream, about a stone's throw from both banks. When the Molly's crew looked up from their tasks, they saw a dozen men standing on the river bank, bows in hand. "'Ahoy, ashore!' Roaring Jack hailed at full volume, his words echoing back to the boat. "'We have Mary and our boys aboard! Don't shoot!' I'm rowing him ashore. In the time it took to load the dory, the number of people on the bank doubled, and still more came from the village. As they helped Mary and the smaller boy into the stern, and the other into the bow, Skarm and Redian heard many people talking at the same time. When the elder boy stood to wave wildly at the people on shore, Roaring Jack rumbled a surprisingly gentle request for him to sit still. Once more, Skarm and Redian exchanged puzzled looks. They watched apprehensively, while in a few expert strokes of his oars, Roaring Jack had the dory nosing into the soft mud of the riverbank, where several men were waiting. From the vantage of the Molly's cockpit, Skarm was counting. Eight men with bows, maybe twice as many without, and a gaggle of girls and women. Not too likely anyone will start a fight, then, said Redian. Hush, laughed Skarm. Listen. Sounds travelled clearly across the calm water. A confusion of voices exclaimed, welcomed, questioned, and commented, as Roaring Jack climbed over the side and stood shin-deep, holding the dory so that Mary and her children could climb ashore. Both men and women came to the water's edge to help. The boys were picked up and hugged. The women who had made their way to the water's edge embraced Mary. The bowmen stood awkwardly holding their weapons, wanting to join in, but not sure whether they should. "'Welcome, and many thanks, friend,' said a tall man as he moved through the crowd. "'I am Daniel, Mayor of Teenmouth.' "'You don't look like the fellow who called himself Mayor when we was last here.' "'He—he retired.' "'Fine thing, that. I see you've got better control of your men.' "'We've been through quite a lot since you were last here.' A woman plucked at Daniel's sleeve, and he bent for her to whisper in his ear. "'We're grateful that you brought Mary and her boys. But what have you done with Becky?' "'We done nothing but picked up what was left after them rotten black-haired pirates ran away. 
My guess is the Sculpin's still got the girl. It's been a long story, but the end of it's before you. Then bring your men ashore so we can thank them and hear the whole tale. We'd like to know what happened to the young man called Estrella. We put a fair deal of hope and money into him going to the castle, and we've heard nothing since. Then you got took, same as me. Estrella was one of your crew, Daniel began, but Roaring Jack cut him off, his voice rising in both pitch and volume. He was aboard me boat, but he was never one of us. Scum-sucking, bottom-feeding, treacherous, ungrateful, lion-nittle... His words tailed off into indistinct rumbles. Daniel frowned as he turned from Roaring Jack and bent to listen to Mary, who had pressed her way through the crowd, her youngest still clinging to her dress. Roaring Jack continued to mouth words, and Daniel's frown deepened as Mary whispered. After Mary had finished, he straightened up to his full height and looked down into Roaring Jack's face. "'Mary tells me you're upset at the death of the other young lad, and that you think a lot about him.' Shouldn't speak ill of the dead, I know, but that lad, Yan, he tried to kill Estrella. He did no such thing! The new mayor of Teenmouth did not flinch, even though he was less than an arm's length from the source of Roaring Jack's huge voice. Daniel wiped spittle that had flown into his face from the skipper's open mouth and took a step forward. Roaring Jack was so used to people backing away when he shouted that he fell back half a step. Before he could recover, Daniel spoke very clearly, quite slowly, but with great intensity. You are wrong. You were not here. I was. So were many of the people you see around you. And we all saw the lad attack Astrea from behind with an oar. Now go back to your boat, and then to your village, and tell them the truth. Scarm and Red Ian saw the skipper's shoulders hunch, and his hands close into fists. They held their breath, as the silence stretched beyond a pause into a threat. Several women's hands flew to their faces. Two of the bowmen knocked arrows and half drew their bows. Daniel raised one hand to check them. Go now. Do not come back. To Scarm and Red Ian's surprise, Roaring Jack did as he was told. He returned to the dory, pushed it into the river, climbed in, dipped oars, and to his crew's amazement rowed clumsily, stern first, to the molly, his back to the people on the beach. Even though he was facing where he was going, he bumped the dory heavily into the boat's side, missed his first grasp at the cockpit combing, and had not Red Ian been quick with a boat-hook, would have shoved the dory back to the shore as he clambered aboard. Skarm, take us out of here! he muttered, and trod heavily down into the cabin. Skarm looked at Red Ian and raised his shoulders. They soon had the boat sailing between the shore and the reef. Some time later, when the molly was approaching the gap to the open sea, Roaring Jack lurched up to the cockpit. He grabbed for the boom above his head, missed, staggered, and supported himself with one arm thrown onto the cabin roof. He stared around with red-rimmed eyes and a puzzled expression. Then his knees buckled, and he sat down with a thump on the cockpit sole, his legs flat out in front of him like a little child. Despite the wind, a strong smell of village whisky filled the cockpit. "'We're going home,' he announced, his voice slurred and uneven. 
Looks like we could be in for a sou'easter, cloudin' over and breezin' up. We could spend the night behind the reef and— Roaring Jack only heard the first few words. Take us there all the sooner. Scarm and Red Ian were disconcerted by Roaring Jack's drunkenness, but they both nodded. Because each saw the other going about the skipper's orders, they set aside their objections, even though both of them knew that winds from the southeast usually brought days of heavy rain, often with vicious squalls. On the Molly's first return trip out of sight of land, they had been able to check their direction by the stars at night and the position of the sun by day, but even though they had had favourable winds, the trip home had been chancy. Now, dirty weather and rising seas would be more than merely uncomfortable. Moreover, the passage out of sight of land would be more dangerous than their first voyage south, because stormy weather would be pressing the molly towards an unknown lee shore all the way. "'We'd be better off after a good look at the stars,' said Scar. "'Lost your nerve, old man? Nothing to it. Keep the wind in your starboard ear, all, and it's a broad reach the whole way. Now, get to it and stop snivelling like lubbers.' He clutched at the cockpit combing, hauled himself to his feet, swayed, and then half-stepped, half-fell down into the cabin. He slumped onto the lee bench with a thud so loud that Reddy and went below to see if the skipper had hurt himself. "'Well, he's breathing steady, but he's out. We're on our own.' He looked around and saw that Scarm had already taken the molly most of the way through the gap in the breakers, and they were lifting to the waves of the open ocean. The opportunity to turn back into the lagoon had passed, but neither spoke, and they carried on. In the hours that followed, they both revisited the moment when they should have insisted on waiting for better weather, but they were much too busy to discuss it. They shortened sail in a rising wind and heaving seas, and then reefed a second time. They wordlessly agreed to head upwind, rather than risk a lee shore, even though to do so pressed the lee rail deeper into the waves and took them further out to sea. Fortunately, there was no rain, and as night fell they caught a glimpse of stars, but the moment quickly passed before they could be certain they were on course. They sailed on in darkness, hoping that the wind would not shift. The skipper did not reappear, which meant that the two men had only three good hands with which to sail. Skarm could barely control the tiller, and tending the sails was a job which required hand-over-hand -hand hauling that only Redian could do. Once he scarcely managed both tasks, while Skarm went below for sweaters and rain-gear. As the night wore on, they laboured together, both knowing that they were relying much too heavily on luck. The dark hours tested Redian's strength and determination as nothing in his life had ever done before. Except for a couple of rain-squalls, the wind held true and relatively dry, but at the cost of steadily increasing cold. The night was so dark they could not see each other, even though they were no more than an arm's length apart. They sailed in silence, until at some time in the night a rogue wave splashed heavily aboard. Red Ian shouted Skarm's name, but received no answer. The big man gripped tiller and mainsheet, holding his breath to listen, hearing only wind and water noises. If Skarm had been washed overboard, there could be no turning back, and even if rescue were possible, he could see nothing. Fortunately, the old sailor had only been knocked down by the wave, and had landed on one hand and both knees. 
Redian was near despair when something bumped on his leg. It was Scone, shaking himself like a wet dog. "'You all right, Scone?' "'Never better,' came the answer from the darkness. "'Shep, I lost me hat. "'Get the skippers. I can hold her.' There followed a long, dark time when Redian was alone with the wind and weather. He was beginning to wonder if he was going blind when a dim orange lantern backlit Scarm's bent body as he came up from the cabin. Scarm's teeth gleamed in a resolute grin as he passed Reddy in a skin of whiskey. Here, have a swig. Skipper don't need it. After they'd both downed a throat-scalding mouthful, Scarm put the whiskey in the stern locker out of Roaring Jack's reach, and they sailed on, somewhat reassured that they could see each other at least in outline. At last the brightening in the east could no longer be dismissed as wishful thinking. Gradually the grey seas became visible, their tops crested in white. Soon the sun was only a brighter patch in the scudding grey clouds, but it was where they'd hoped they would see it rise. Redian glanced at Skarm and eased the molly downwind. "'Not too much,' said Skarm. "'We don't know if we've enough northing.' Redian nodded as Skarm climbed cautiously forward into the cabin's top, where he clung to the mast and peered westward. He swayed back and forth with the boat's action, somewhere between sleep and waking. Roaring Jack's voice snapped him fully awake. "'What's you done with Skarm, Red? Can't a man get a better shut eye without you lubbers falling into the salt shack?' Roaring Jack thundered up onto the cockpit and stood looking at Red Ian, his eyes unfocused. Then he slowly turned around and saw Skarm in his lookout position. Ah, oh, said the skipper, and then repeated himself in something close to a moan. Oh. He turned back towards the companionway, and then suddenly doubled up over the lee rail. As his red-haired head was momentarily immersed in a wave, Skarm and Red Ian looked at him with disgust, only slightly tempered with concern. The skipper came up spluttering, his beard and hair pasted across his face. I've got to go below, he muttered, and staggered down into the cabin. Gale force hangover. Land to port? We did it, Red! And so it went for that day and the days that followed. They navigated, using what they remembered of Australia's sketches of the coastline, stopping overnight in some of the same bays and coves. The weather cleared, but at the cost of increasing cold from the north. At the end of each day they fell asleep, exhausted, by tacking against contrary winds. Each morning the frosts of early autumn lay on the deck and rigging. The food ran out, and the fish were not biting. Every day Roaring Jack went below into the cabin, where he had secreted a seemingly inexhaustible supply of whisky. Skarm tried to hide the skins, but each time Roaring Jack found yet another from some improbable place. At each of his infrequent appearances he complained loud and long about their seamanship. Redian and Skarm ignored the skipper's increasingly savage verbal attack. Finally, as the sun sank into clouds that promised snow before morning, the molly rode down a long ocean swell through the headlands that protected the village and entered the calm fjord where the rest of the village fleet were already tied up. Ahead of them they saw the people of the village streaming out of their cottages to cluster on the wharf. 
Roaring Jack lunged into the cockpit and contemptuously shoved Scarm away from the tiller. Clutching the combing with one hand, the skipper tried to recapture his old, confident stance at the helm. Instead, he made a botch of coming alongside the wharf, rammed the molly's bowsprit into the stern of Silver Don's Ronnie D., and loudly blamed Red Ian and Scarm for his error. The villagers, who'd come to welcome the molly back from what many thought was certain loss, murmured together as Roaring Jack scrambled ashore and shambled towards them. They'd all seen men come back from bad days at sea, but there was a wildness in what they could see at his eyes that made his wife Molly hesitate. She ran towards him, her arms outstretched, tears on her rounded cheeks. Jack, she cried, you're home. Where's Cam? I hope the bastard drowns. The villagers were suddenly silent. Did you find Estrella? she asked as she reached for him. Shut your mouth, Mole. I'll not have anyone speak of that black-haired, black-hearted son of a pirate. Jack, what's wrong? she asked, staring up into the tangle of red hair that obscured most of his face. The back of Roaring Jack's right hand smacked Molly's cheek with a crack that echoed in the aghast silence. As she staggered back to be comforted by the other wives, Redian's huge arms pinned the skipper's hands to his body. Scarm, the lead line in his good hand, was close behind him. Roaring Jack writhed in Redian's grip, but he could not escape. Mutiny! His voice, loud as ever, had broken into a startling falsetto screech. The other skippers glanced at each other, and then moved as if controlled by one mind. After a few hectic moments, Silver Dan's nose was jetting blood from a headbutt, sustained while stuffing a gag into the skipper's rage-distorted mouth, and two other skippers were rubbing their kicked shins. But by then, Roaring Jack's arms were bound to his sides, and as Red Ian restrained the man he had obeyed for most of his life, Scarm began to tell the villagers what had happened. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.